Hello, and welcome to the Elam Thriving Podcast. We're here to connect you with information and resources that promote thriving. Our goal is to see you and the individuals with disabilities that you support thriving together in community. Welcome back to Elam Thriving. I'm your host, Nick Milano, and I'm joined today by special guest Bradley Height. Welcome, Bradley. How are you doing today? I'm well, Nick. Thank you for asking. <laughs> Great. Can you please introduce yourself and give a brief background for our audience so they know what you're all about? Absolutely. Uh, allow myself to uh, introduce myself. Um, my name is Bradley Height. I am a neuroscientist at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I work in a lab. My lab is called the Synaptic Plasticity and Memory Lab. Um, however, that's not where I've always been. I started out as a physical therapist working with patients with a really a spectrum of neuropathologies, everything from MS to spinal cord injury, post-polio, um, post-stroke. And um, from that experience, I uh, decided that I wanted to understand more about some of the neurological underpinnings of what I was treating at the behaviorally overt level, excuse me, the behaviorally overt level, and um, then got a PhD in neuroscience. And uh, the rest, I guess, is history. So um, my focus primarily is in stroke research and the etiology of stroke. Um, but I still do maintain a, um, a little clinical practice uh, working with my patients as well. Great stuff. You're having, you have a very different history than most of the people we've had on, but I do think it's important to talk to you because the brain is a very essential part of learning and we are in the business of education here at Elam. So I thought it'd be important to have you on. So I think it's important for us to just understand how does the brain work exactly? So can you start with just what are the different parts of the brain Sure, sure. So a couple of things at the outset. I think there's there's two big things you need to appreciate with the brain. Um, number one is the unique function of each part of the brain itself, and also the fact that the brain is very interconnected. And it's never just one neuron firing. It's always a confluence of neurons firing, um, typically in a circuit. And uh, with respect to structures or neuroanatomical structures, the brain has four lobes. You have a frontal lobe, you have a parietal lobe, you have a temporal lobe, and you have an occipital lobe. I was just going from anterior to, to posterior or front to back there. Uh, the, the frontal lobe is kind of uh, our like major executive functioning aspect or, or, or executive functioning part of our brain where the, the most um, kind of uh, uh, cognitive and uh, the more intellectual part of our our uh, functioning comes from is the, that frontal cortex or the frontal lobe. Uh, the temporal lobe has to do a lot with um, auditory perception, uh, understanding what sounds mean, the production of sounds from your own mouth. Um, there's also the hippocampus, which sits in the, the temporal lobe, which is our declarative and episodic memory center. So that's actually where memories are generated, is in the hippocampus. We could talk more about that later, I'm sure. Um, and then you have the parietal cortex, which sits just above that, uh, above the temporal lobe and behind the frontal lobe. Uh, that's a, a big time association area, primarily like sensory motor association, uh, primarily sensory, um, but also some pre-motor um, drive comes from that area as well, like the planning of, of motor uh, execution. And then the occipital lobe is, is kind of canonically thought of as our visual center or our visual relay center or visual processing center. Makes sense. And they're all interconnected. So it's like they all share the load in some way or another. There's a lot of overlap, I'm assuming. Big time, yes. Um, and then, in fact, that's one of the hallmarks of a healthy brain is you see uh, good connectivity uh, from these various lobes. Now, there is a 
extreme to that in, in like schizophrenia or various other pathologies, you have too much connectivity, you know, uh, parts of the brain that should never be talking to one another are actually talking to one another. Um, the only time you see that in a healthy subject is when someone is dreaming, when they're in REM sleep. Um, sleep, not go off on some type of diatribe on sleep, but it, that's one of those areas or it's one of those areas that still is a uh, an area that's ripe for more exploration because we still don't really understand much about uh, dreams. But in terms of what the brain is doing when we're dreaming and this REM sleep, uh, non-REM sleep, it's interesting because there are parts of the brain that typically never talk to one another that all of a sudden are showing connectivity. Um, but yes, in general, yes, there's strong connectivity in the brain. The brain is, uh, you know, a series of circuits per se. Awesome. It's such a cool thing to visualize how the brain works. It's just so complex that I don't think even experts truly understand it. Is that accurate? Like there's still things we're learning every day. Absolutely. Anybody who says that they have the market on how the brain works, uh, is full of it <laughs> and it should be discredited right then and there. Um, you know, the reality is, you know, and I can speak from my own humility is we, we don't understand anything about the brain. Um, we really are just scratching the surface. It's kind of cliche to say that, but it is true. Um, it seems that we are, you know, every week learning about new, uh, functions from various structures or a structure that we thought did this now is involved in that. And okay, now we see that the anterior cingulate cortex is involved in neuropathic pain and now it's involved in mood. So it's, it's an, it's an ongoing story and an ongoing mystery, uh, you know, that I, you know, like, because it'll keep me employed for a while. <laughs> yeah. There's just so much to the brain that it seems like there's just a never ending. Well, kind of like exploring outer space where they're just no matter where you go, there's always more to see. And it's just part of the beauty of the design of the brain. There's just an infinite amount of wonder in just discovering it and seeing how it all works. So you mentioned, and this is something that perked my ears up, just being an educator. You said in the front part of the brain is a lot of the executive functioning skills. Mm -hmm. And I know what that means for education, but mm -hmm. I'm curious, what does it mean from neuroscience perspective? Um, from a neuroscience perspective... You can, you know, and this again is just kind of a, a generality, but that's it's kind of where someone's personality is formed. Mm -hmm. Your ability to make decisions, uh, your ability to command your behaviors and your intentions, um, that all comes from that prefrontal cortex. Probably one of the most classic stories is um, back in the 1800s, late 1800s, a guy by the name of Phineas Gage was working on a railroad and in some freak accident, he had this railroad nail go right through his eyeball up Ooh. through his prefrontal cortex, survived, mm -hmm. uh, just lost sight in, a, in his left eye, but um, was survived uh, amazingly. But the majority of his brain that was damaged was his prefrontal cortex. And what was interesting is that what we previously knew or what the his friends previously knew as a responsible, hardworking, kind man, all of a sudden turned into this belligerent, mm. swearing, you know, lazy person. So that's when research started to see and realize, wow, this front part of our brain really has a lot to do with our personality and the traits that we um, possess, you know, personally. Um, and that's kind of how that's, you know, if you were to look back and research uh, just the history of research, you would see that our, our biggest um, kind of developments uh, come from when we see when something goes wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, why is this not? So this is going wrong. This is not working. Um, why is that? Oh, okay. It has to do with this part of the brain. And then we kind of understand a little bit more about that specific structure. That's a fascinating story. And, and it's unfortunate, but it is interesting that that sparked a lot of research. And it reminds me a lot of like the penicillin discovery story where sure, yeah. accidents are the reason we learn right. a lot of stuff, right. which is 
it's kind of how it goes a lot of times. You know, like, how else are we going to know to do things or test things out? Right. We have craziness. But. And with respect to learning, if I could just camp out on this, you know, this idea of um, research developments and discoveries, um, the, the reason we know that the hippocampus is this center for uh, memory generation um, is because of a patient named H.M., this guy that had a uh, complete lesion um, of his hippocampus, uh, a com- complete hippocampal lobotomy per se. And uh, after that procedure, this freak medical uh, procedure he had um, he had done to him, uh, he was unable to remember anything outside of 20 to 30 seconds. So you'd introduce yourself to him. Mm-hmm. Hi, my name is Bradley Stavrosite. He'd be, you know, you talk to him for 30 more seconds. You know, he'd ask you, okay, what's your name? Hi, my name is H.M. So that's where we learned that that's where our short-term memory resides and also is where our memory is actually generated, where the, the beginnings of memories are generated was in the hippocampus. And it was largely due to the fact that this patient had this freak procedure done to him and then had these interesting traits and phenotypes uh, afterwards. Yeah, that's terrifying. It reminds me of an Adam Sandler movie, <laughs> like 50 First Dates. Yeah, no. But yeah, uh, it's like, man, there is so much going on all at the same time that it is no wonder that we don't really know how the brain impacts learning and we can't like fine tune it the way we want in education. So Mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier, schizophrenia is too much activity in the brain. And I'm sure there's other things that are too little activity and like just different ways the brain operates affects our bodies in different ways. So we'll get to that in a little bit, but I'm just curious, how does the brain send signals to our body? If I have the thought to move my arm, how does it actually like know to do that? It's a, it's a great question, and you know, it's something we just kind of take for granted that happens. But to have someone tease out exactly what's happening at the neuroanatomical level is another thing. So, you know, if I want to reach for this beverage, um, if I were to reach for it, I'm, I'm telling my I'm telling my arm to do this action. It's coming from a part of my brain called the motor cortex, which mm-hmm. is sits here in kind of the posterior aspect uh, or the back of the frontal lobe. This is where we command all of our movement, and it's kind of in the lateral part of, of that frontal cortex. So the signal is coming from that area of my brain for my arm to extend and grab um, this, this cup, uh, this mug, and bring it to my mouth to have a nice sip. And those signals descend down from the cortex. They come down through the uh, brainstem. They actually cross over to the other side. So if I'm using my right arm to reach for this cup, it's actually coming from the left side of my brain. And then it goes out to the neuromuscular junction to tell the proper muscles to fire and then bring the, the drink to my mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, there's a host of other things going on besides right. that. Uh, there's also sensory input. Uh, you have something called proprioceptors in your skin and your muscles that sense the amount of tension and force you're supposed to be providing. So you don't just you know crush the glass, but also <laughs> so you don't grab it too lightly. Um, it's really an amazing orchestration of things that are happening, even with something as simple as grabbing a glass. Right. It is so complex beyond our comp- beyond the average person's comprehension. So let's say I, it's one thing to think about moving my arm to pick up a glass. Does it work the same way if I'm going to, let's say, solve a math problem? Do I do the same things or is it a different parts of the brain that work for some more high functioning type of uh, brain activity? Yeah, so so with that there is no motor execution with that. Typically, maybe one that follows after, you know, you have an idea, then you get the answer to the math question and you write it down. But um, with respect to just kind of intellectually thinking and using some of these executive functions of the brain, that's all going on in the frontal cortex. You may be drawing from other areas in the brain. 
Um, but for the most part, there's a lot of processing that's going on in that frontal lobe, whether you're figuring out a math question, figuring out the right thing to say, uh, trying to put a sentence together. That's all frontal lobe related. Yeah. Wild. Yeah, it's kind of wild. <laughs> and, you know, if you ask somebody to go up to the front of the classroom to write on the board, then it's like everything's working together. Because exactly. you have to get up out of your seat, take steps, think mm -hmm. about what you're going to put on the board. <laughs> it's true. No, and, and then with that example, there's also visual cues. You know, I have to right. get up out of my seat, walk away from my, my desk. These are all um, uh, things that require you to intake stimuli from your visual system, from your sensory system. Um, hey, buddy. Uh, and then uh, ultimately from your more intellectual cognitive system as well in the frontal lobe. So. so it sounds like the front brain, if I'm hearing correctly, is more of a movement focus and the middle brain is more of your thoughts. And the rear of the brain is more like a lizard. I don't know. It's a lizard brain. I don't know. I've heard that term. but is that Yeah. Like so when people use reptilian terms, they're, they're talking what's, about what's called the limbic system, mm -hmm. which you know, in evolutionary terms, if you believe in evolution, uh, is the early brain of the humans. Uh, the limbic system is made up of the hippocampus, the amygdala, mm -hmm. the anterior cingulate cortex, the insular cortex. Uh, they all make up this very primitive part of the brain that you see in lower animals, right? Right. Um, we have it as well. It's a little more um, more sophisticated, obviously. And then, of course, we have uh, this uh, frontal cortex that's very developed. Um, but yeah, when people are talking about lizard brains and whatnot, they're talking about the limbic system typically, um, which typically has to do with, you know, natural uh, drives like uh, appetitive behavior, consummatory behavior, eating, drinking, sexual behavior, sleeping, like these just natural urges that we have, uh, fleshly urges, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's typically generated from your limbic system. Got it. Yeah. So it's not actually... The brain of a lizard. I know that term. I've heard of it, but yeah. thank you for explaining that. It's just more of an evolutionary conceptual term used right. to describe some more lower functioning, like basic urge type stuff, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. So if somebody, let's say, has a less cognitive capacity, mm -hmm. let's say somebody has a severe case of autism mm -hmm. and they're limited to just nonverbal, they can't speak, but they're able to follow with eyes and you know, they can listen, but they're kind of limited in what they can do. Would you say like that's more of that taking control or is that just, I don't know, what does it look like? No, that's a, that's a great question. And, you know, what we're finding more out of, about uh, regarding autism, and I'm not an autism um, uh, expert by any means. It's not my specific subfield, um, but I do know a few things about the disorder. Uh, and with respect to autism, it's less of a structural malformation or a lack of brain tissue. It's more of a lack of connectivity and specifically a lack of connectivity between the frontal lobe and the parietal lobe. At least that's the going theory. Um, we don't really have a great animal model for autism. They do have a transgenic mouse known as the um, Fragile X mouse mm. where they've studied some um, uh, you know, learning deficits. They've studied social deficits in these mice because it is a model for autism. Um, but again, we can't, you know, with with the, with all of human research, I should say, not the majority of it, with all of human research, we can't really just take a human, crack open his or her brain and see what's going on. Um, we can just study some of these 
kind of more uh, less invasive uh, assays, like where's the blood flowing in the brain? What's showing activity? Um, is there hypertrophy or, or more robust area of the brain? Is there a less robust area of the brain in these patients? Um, so we can study more of the morphological and architecture of the brain. Um, we can't study some of the nuances of the types of neurons, the neurochemistry. Um, however, there are um, some a little bit more sophisticated assays out there where people are looking at uh, blood profiles uh, of autistic patients to try to draw some mm -hmm. conclusions from that. So it sounds to me in a lot of ways that it's not that people with disabilities don't have these parts or those parts don't work at all, but they just operate in a different way. Exactly. A neurotypical person. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the classic, you know, autistic um, symptomology is poor social interactions, poor mm -hmm. social skills. Um Poor responses to social stimuli, right. um, not knowing when to laugh, not knowing when to smile, uh, not mimicking uh, motions, not mimicking certain behaviors. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's not that they lack the hardware per se. Mm -hmm. It's just the software is a little um, different. Um, and, you know, in my opinion, it's not better. It's not worse. It's just a little different. And we uh, appreciate that because <laughs> having worked in students with autism and all sorts of a host of different things. People are people in the end. So let's shift gears. I know about the different areas of the brain, but how are they all connected? Because it sounds like that is where a lot of the issues with disabilities and with lack and um, discrepancies in performance arise. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, um, there is a, a large level of connectivity in the brain. And as I kind of said at the outset, it is, not just individual neurons firing by themselves, but it's a reticulum mm -hmm. um, firing in these circuits. And, you know, honestly, as a neuroscientist, uh, speaking on behalf of all neuroscientists, I think we're still figuring out what those circuits are and where the connectivity is uh, and what um, constitutes a normal state of connectivity and, and what doesn't. Um, I will say that, you know, from, from, uh, from a point, per place of, um, expertise is working with patients is that, you know, in terms of the motor system, almost the entire brain is involved to some magnitude with motor behavior and motor output and mm -hmm. the execution of movements. Um, uh, and I think, you, you know, any neuroscientist would, would agree with that. But with respect to, um, you know, cognition and mood and uh, behaviors um, and pain, uh, we're still trying to figure out not only you know what areas of the brain are involved, but also uh, the multiple areas of the brain that are involved, mm -hmm. um, and how that changes, even specifically with pain, how that changes as these painful signals come up from the periphery into the brain. Um, so it, it's a it's a tough question to to, to answer. Like, how is the brain connected? Right. It is connected, um, and and honestly, it it, it it's uh, something that uh, you know neuroscientists worldwide are trying to still mm. tease out and probe is what are the connectomes of the brain. So many, it sounds like. There's just a, yeah. a lot of different ways that it is. So right. you mentioned circuits and neurons. So it sounds like a computer in all honesty, but can you describe those a little bit more in depth? Sure. No, you're, uh, you're right. It's a tired analogy, but um, the brain really is like a computer. Uh, it really is. You have storage. You have new software that can be implemented, mm -hmm. um, and specifically with with learning and memory, you know, you, you generate new memories from 
the hippocampus. That's one of the few places, the few niches in the brain where you have something that's called neurogenesis or the creation of new neurons. <clears throat> Actually, this isn't even that, um, Man, this wasn't even well known up until maybe 15, 20 years ago that you could actually make new neurons. Right. Um, I remember, yeah, just thinking like, this is it. Right, no. When I was in school, yeah, the lesson was like, don't drink alcohol, don't smoke cigarettes, right. don't do this, and don't you know wear a helmet because once they're gone, they're gone right. forever. I still think you should do those things, Nick, or not do those, some of those things. But, um, with wisdom, with, with some discernment. Right, right, with discernment, with, with, with perspicacity um, and with, with boundaries. But uh, no, we, you know, uh, in, a, in a series of very elegant experiments about 15, 20 years ago, um, some very bright scientists realized that we have two unique niches in the brain where we're making new neurons every day. Uh, mm -hmm. One is the olfactory bulbs, which, as the name would suggest, has to do with our sense of smell. And the second would be the hippocampus, the generation of new memories, which takes place in the hippocampus, which is one of these areas that we've recently realized uh, is an area of neurogenesis or the ability of new neurons to be made. And your observation is right. I think the, the, the dogma up until about 15, 20 years ago was that after the age of two, whatever you got, you got, so don't spare any. And that's right. just, just, just not true. Um, so when we make these new neurons in the hippocampus, if they're a memory that uh, is going to be maintained with us, they will then be uploaded per se into the frontal cortex. And that's where these memories are stored. Mm -hmm. um, so like today, you know, I'm making a memory of our time together um, and it will probably be a long-term memory that we'll talk about in 40 years. Oh, one can only hope. I know, right? Lord, uh, Lord willing. Lord willing, yes. Want to hear more from this conversation? In the next Elam Thriving episode, Nick and Bradley conclude their conversation on neuroscience and special education. Stay tuned to your podcast feed Thanks for listening to the Elam Thriving Podcast. If you like what you heard, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to us if you left some feedback. You can learn more about us at our website, elamcs.org. Thanks again for listening.